Working Cows Podcast, Episode 79. Welcome to the podcast that gives producers a platform to discuss and share paradigm-challenging practices. Practices that have increased the effectiveness of their operation and the joy that their families have received from this lifestyle. Hey everybody, it's Clay Connery, host of the Working the Cows podcast, powered by the Global Ag Network. Had a really interesting opportunity here. Brett reached out to me and said that he had been listening to the podcast and had been learning from some of these same people and putting it into practice the ideas that we present here and that those thinkers present in their own work. And uh, he said, if you ever want to talk about that transition process, just reach out to me. And so I was like, heck yeah, I do. I want to talk all about that. So I reached out to Brett and he was gracious enough to uh, work me into his schedule. And so we're going to talk to Brett today about the transition process on his place. Brett, thanks for joining me today on the Working Cows podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Clay. I appreciate it. So you reached out to me and said that you have been uh, in a transition over the last few years. Uh, what was the nature of your operation prior to the transition? I guess over the last year, he said. But what was the nature of your operation prior to the transition, I guess, is where we'll start. Right. Well, um, pretty much we were set stocked. So we run, you know, we're pretty small. We run about 150 mama cows. Uh, keep those calves after weaning until about yearlings and then market at our regional Oklahoma City uh, stockyards. And we just pretty much rented places, you know, 160 acres, put 25 cows on it, maybe 30, uh, wean those calves off and do wheat pasture or something like that. And then, you know, hay from, gosh, sometimes September to April or May, and wasn't making a whole lot of money, believe it or not, doing that. And uh, so I just started looking around for some some other ideas. Come across your podcast, which is, you know, man, the people you've had on here have just been absolutely phenomenal as far as I'm concerned. I probably learned as much from listening to all those podcasts as I have research on the internet and, and some of the meetings I've gone to and things like that is because you have some really good people you know that that really know what they're doing um so we decided or i decided to start trying to do some rotational grazing and kind of the thing i wanted to maybe share with your listeners if, if you've got somebody that's on the fence about it and not really sure if that's something that they want to try um man i have just been blown away by the results that we've seen in even a short amount of time and so i talk about it with everybody you know, everywhere I go, I think people kind of get tired of me sometimes, but, uh, yeah, it's exciting because, uh, you know, this year I have two groups where I stockpile grass, uh, late summer, early fall. And one of those is a group of 30 pairs. The other is a group of 25 uh, or actually 40, uh, spring calving cows. Um, no, hay yet this year at all, not a single bale. And that's unheard of for me and for, and really for our operation. <laughs> and we, we rent all of our land. I don't own any land at all. Uh, and I, you know, just try to keep my landlords happy and, 
and really by doing this and fencing the cattle out of the pond and you know it's it's helped with the wildlife it's helped with the the pond clarity you can see the bottoms now where you couldn't before and uh, you know it, it's a it's a totally different way of doing things oh that's really cool so i would like to focus on something you said about uh the kind of timeline of your hay feeding what you said you were starting in september is that right september october depending on the year but yeah usually you know and then how long would that last well sometimes till uh april you know a lot of times tax tax day april 15th we're still haying cows right and so were you putting up that hay yourself or buying it in i suppose yes we put up everything ourselves, and that's another thing that I kind of got out of out of some of the people you had on, uh, Wally Olson, uh, uh, Jim uh, Garish. You know, just learning that if I'm not really in that hay enterprise, you know, and if I'm not out there trying to make money off of that, I can't really afford that to feed my cattle. And so, we've been transitioning out of that as well. Uh, sold down quite a bit on equipment. I'm still going to put up some hay. But I really like the idea that I've been hearing about buying those nutrients and bringing them to my farm and rolling them out instead of putting them up on my own place or on our leased places as a you know as a, as it may go. But yeah, but up until now we have raised, and this year I tried to do both. You know, I wanted insurance policy, so I put up all my hay and and tried to stockpile grass, and and so it worked a little bit harder than I probably should have. So you're in Oklahoma, is that right? Correct. What North part Central. of North Central Oklahoma? Yeah, we're about halfway between Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Okay. And me being from Western South Dakota, where it is zero ambient and negative, we actually canceled our church programs tonight because the negative, the 20 below windshield didn't sound like very much fun to try and shuffle kids right. around in. So I, I want to know what is kind of the average that you're aware of as far as people around you and their their hay feeding and how does that usually look for your neighbors or uh, people in the industry in your area? I would say we were pretty typical. So, you know, that's about six months. So half the year we're feeding hay. And uh, I have some neighbors that are mainly horse people, but they run a lot of cattle. They own land all around us. Um, and they feed probably more than that. Um, you know, they, I, I'll see them take out hay in the summertime sometimes. Um, but typically the older farmers and ranchers around here are, are that type of system. You know, it's just cause that's the way it's always been done. And, you know, you hear that kit Pharaoh and something like that, you know, you're like, eh, well, you got to think outside the box. And that's, that's absolutely right. So is that because the grass peters out that they're doing that or what, what is the. Right. Right. So like us, we would, uh, we would plant 80 to 120 acres of ryegrass, uh, graze that with the stalkers until about January, market those in January, and then let that grow until it uh, made hay in May or early June, and then bale that. And then it would sit there and just be bare all summer, whatever weeds grew up, and then work that ground again and start over again. So we've, we've gone into no-till. We've tried to, you know, reduce the amount of hay ground that we have and then this year we're going to buy hay and actually bring hay and nutrients in but that's how it's always been done around here and that's pretty much how my neighbors do it as well 
So what were there other influences uh, in the decision to go that direction other than uh, the podcast or what was the that I'm what I would anticipate is that it was like I, I or something whetted your appetite and you went and did your own research and how, how did that look for you? Well, yeah, you know, I think profitability was a big deal. Um, and, you know, I enjoy cattle, always have. Um, I like working with them. I, I would consider myself, uh, I don't know what the right term is, but somebody that handles cattle correctly, you know, and, and tries to be uh, doing what's good for the animal as well as what's good for the, for the farm, kind of always have. But I just felt like I wasn't really, you know, seeing cows standing in the pond in the middle of summer uh, when it's hot and, you know, looking at the pond water and, and that's what we drink. Yeah, that's what they drink. So you're like, gosh, that can't be the best thing, you know, and then uh, wondering about, you know, do they need shade, all these different things. And so I just started researching some of that stuff and I come across rotational grazing and I was really against it because I thought, you know, I don't want to move cattle every day. I, I like cattle, but, you know, setting them out in the pasture and not looking at them until they're ready to calve, that's a lot easier. And I, and that concerned me. And I, I reached out to several people, um, you know, Gabe Brown, you've had him on your podcast. And I, I had seen some of his videos and he put some contact information on there and I contacted him and he called me and talked. And, you know, I, to me, that just blew me away that he would take the time to kind of walk me through some of my questions and things. But people in this industry are really giving of their time and really giving of their information because they figure something out and they want to share it. And that's been, you know, that's been really helpful to me just to be able to, you know, reach out to him this spring. I called him and I said, I've got weeds everywhere and I'm just, you know, the farmer in me wants to go hook onto that offset disc and go out there. He texts me back right away. Don't till, don't till. <laughs> and, you know, so he said, turn the cows in, let them eat it, see what happens. And, and they did. They ate the weeds. I was like, hey, that works. <laughs> was it a, did you have them on pretty small paddocks at each time to get them to eat those weeds? Or how did that work for you? Really wasn't too bad that, that they were young enough, uh, immature enough that they, uh, the, the weeds I'm talking about were, uh, I guess, you know, like Kathy Post says, they had some, some uh, protein and energy in them and the cows figured that I ate them and uh, you know then and that cleared my field for the next crop so but yeah I do use uh, uh, a lot of temporary fencing uh, pretty much perimeter fences on I've been trying to do about 40 acres at a plot and then as a perimeter and then fencing off somewhere between an acre to five acres depending on how long I'll leave them in there hmm. uh, to move on a daily or at least every other day rotation. And how, how often are you moving them daily or every other day? Is that through the growing season or is that? Pretty much uh, our stockpile grass. Uh, I'm giving them a lot bigger areas. Uh, we've been really extremely wet this year, uh, fall, winter, and spring, or we're not spring yet, but to up until now, a lot more rain than normal. So I want them to have plenty of room where they're not in mud or really tracking up things. So they're getting about 15 acres per move. And so I'm leaving like those 40 that are down there on the stockpile grass. They're, uh, they're getting those 15 acres and then they're in there for probably a week and then they'll move to another. And I'm not using a back fence so they can walk back across that if they want to. Now, when it starts greening up, 
I'll lock them in certain areas and not let them come back and eat those new new growth. Did you just rip the Band-Aid off on this deal, or did you did you test it out? Did you experiment? How did that go? Pretty much ripped the Band-Aid off. I uh, I I laid a bunch of water line, and I got uh, a, a, some solar-powered uh, uh, pumps. Kind of made my own setup on a uh, water pump system and set some water tanks out there and put some valves on so that I could run, you know, water to different areas of the farms. And, you know, having leased land, I had like five properties. So I, set, I made three of those things and set them all around and, and set my fences up and that. And so, you know, I was pretty much committed. Not, you know, I spent a lot of money last spring and a lot of time, but uh, I was pretty committed when we first started it. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was jump in feet first, I guess. And how's that gone? What do, what do you think your return on investment has been so far? Oh, I haven't. I haven't. You know, I wanted to crawl up and check my cubes today, and it was we had a little bit of ice, so I didn't get on the ladder because it's nowhere it had been. Um, actually wanted to see where I was at because I don't – we bought those in the fall and put 20 tons in an overhead bin, and I haven't ran out yet. So I was normally I would refill in uh, early February, about right now, and have to refill that bin for – because I am feeding protein along with mine. We just don't have enough uh, green protein with that stockpile grass. So I'm feeding uh, two pounds of those cubes every other day uh, to keep them going. And they're doing well. But uh, money-wise, I have no idea. Stuff's going to the accountant actually sitting over here on the bar right now. <laughs> so probably tomorrow and we'll kind of figure out. But, you know, it, it would be nice to turn a profit. And I'm looking forward to doing that. Nice. Um, you mentioned landlords and how, how has that relationship been? How much of, uh, have you had to let any leases go or anything like that because they weren't okay with you and your crazy ideas? <laughs> I haven't yet. You know, um, I know you had Joel Southton on and I, I see he has some issues a time or two, but I, I haven't put that many cattle on one spot. Now that may be a, that may be a, the next hurdle probably is getting the landlord to say you're going to run 120 cows through here you know and uh uh-uh, you know so that might be uh, well it, it, i think communication i just you know i need to communicate what i'm doing showing some some information and and share with them you know that i think it'll really improve their land i try to treat those leases like i own that land and i take really good care of my stuff so i think they appreciate me uh, for the most part, we also have honeybees. And so I always take them a bottle of honey when I go talk to them. <laughs> that kind of sweetens the deal as well. Human relations right there. Yeah. <laughs> and what is the average size of your leased pieces or how many, how many landlords do you have, I guess? Uh, right now I'm down to, um, well, to two families. So, you know, how that goes, you deal with with the one family, I may be able with five different people, but uh, yeah, right now I'm down to two families. I had I had uh, had my dad's place leased. I let that go. It was a little bit too far away. No way to do rotational grazing there. Um, had another place leased uh, about. It was probably close enough. It was within five miles, but um, I just got to where it, it just didn't work well for me. Two rotational graze. No way to cross fence it. Just too many trees and stuff everywhere. And so that was mutual. We were kind of like, I said, hey, I've had this forever and I, I hate to just leave you hanging and I'll try to find you someone to lease it. And he said, oh man, 
my kids want it. So I was going to talk to you about so that. That worked out really well. You know, okay. you hate to just leave some guy without, without somebody to lease his grass. We have fire issues around here. I don't know if you guys are there or not, but that gets tall. And then you start worrying about ah, something comes through. I got a lot of fuel. Sure. Yeah, we do in the, in the black Hills definitely have fire issues. Um, but on the prairies, some, you know, there was a pretty, pretty good sized fire a couple of years ago up northeast or northwest of where I'm at. But it, it's, it's probably a little bit more rare that something really big happens on the prairie. But, and, and it's not that often in the hills either, but there's definitely that potential with some of the dry, dry stuff. So, what is the nature of the landlords that you do have? Are they non operator landowners? Are they absentee owners? What kind of a, uh, the one is pretty much, uh, the one family is pretty much an absentee. They live, all of them live out of state, uh, Texas for the most part, some Kansas. Um, and that, you know, it was, it was grandma and granddad's place. They passed on and, you know, the kid, the grandkids wound up with it. And so that's why you've got all these different owners. And the other is actually my father-in-law. And so I live very close to him. And so I lease his, his, uh, I think you asked me what size and all that, but uh, most of those are quarters, 160 acres each. And then some of those are, you know, like they have several. So there's several of those leased. I lease about, I don't know, adding that up, but probably uh, 800 acres, something like that. And have you, well, I guess you're you're not bringing or you're not feeding as much hay or have they been grazing up to now, right? Is that right? Right, right. We've got, we've got two groups that we did uh, with no hay so far, and I think they'll make it. Uh, I've still got a lot of stockpile grass left. Uh, and then um, there's just one group that we fed hay. because they're And that's my next big move. They're calving at the wrong time of year. They're, they're totally out of sync with nature. They're calving November 15th starting. And so those, you know, that's now that I know that, that's wrong. <laughs> you know, and so that's costing me, I'm sure. But... So those are getting hay and cubes and some stockpile grass. Sure. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with that question is how has the breed up been, you know, have have you had an opportunity through this process to check how fertility held up through the, you know, ripping the Band-Aid off, so to speak? Right. Um, you know, it's, I have had more open cows this year. I'll just be honest with you. I have, but I kind of, anticipated that because the other thing I did was I stopped dewormer. Um, you know, it, all the things that I've heard about that pretty much sterilizing that manure patty, that's not really giving me what I want as far as my biological activity and my insect activity in the soil. So uh, we stopped and, and we kind of knew that, you know, some of those cows are not going to do well with that. And so those got pulled out and dewormed and put in a lot and fed back to where they had good body condition. And they, some of them have already been cold. Uh, the rest of them are yet to be cold in the spring. And so I think for the first year, maybe two years, it'll be cooling pretty hard. But I'm bringing replacement heifers on to try to keep my numbers up. And how are you selecting those replacement heifers? Uh, well, I bought a, I bought a good kit payroll bull. And, you know, I, I, I have to say, I, uh, I feel like, I don't know how much you know about his business, but you know, they, they say that they have a program and they're selling you a program along with their bull and backing on that. And, 
you know, I thought, I really thought when I heard that, yeah, that's all just something trying to get a sale. I've heard that before, but I really feel like I bought a, a, uh, you know, my way into a group and I got a free bull in the process hmm. because all the people that are in that email group that gets sends out every week or every, every time somebody writes something in, those people have a wealth of knowledge. I mean, those are a lot of people have been on your show. So, you know, to, to have that influence and to be able to email a question to that group and have several of them respond and people that you really think are, you know, way smarter than I am or way more, at least way more experienced. That's just been, uh, that's been a, a real deal for me. You know, that, that's been extremely helpful. That's cool. That's really cool to hear. Appreciate that. How is the, how's the practice been received at the coffee shop or do you just avoid that altogether? Or? <laughs> uh, you pretty much avoid that conversation at the coffee shop. Barber shop probably, uh, my barber's actually interested in, believe it or not. You know, he asks me every, every time I come in, how's it going? How's it going? You know, and so I, I'll sit there the whole time I'm in the chair and talk to him about rotational grazing, which he has no idea what the heck I'm talking about, but he keeps up with it, you know? So, uh, my father-in-law, I run, I help, I, uh, he has about, what is he, uh, 35 head of cows and I run his with mine and take care of him for him. He's retired for the most part. He just, he likes to have some cows around. So part of my lease agreement is to take care of his 30, 40 head. Um, and he was a tough sale, you know, I, he's not probably not a hundred percent on board yet, but he's coming around and we're, we're, he's seeing enough difference, I think in the cows, in their condition, in the amount of, uh, inputs that we're having to put in and even in the ground, you know, what it looks like. I think that he's starting to say, huh, we might really look into this deal. And, and not that he hasn't been supported. My, both my folks, my parents and my wife's parents, both still alive. Um, and they they both, that's, that's a good support structure for me. They, they both live close and uh, they've both been very supportive. But, you know, they ask me questions like, well, what are you going to do when, you know, and you're like, uh, well, I have to cross that bridge when I come to because I have no idea. <laughs> and so how did you go about, making that transition as far as the planning your grazing and your stockpile grass and all that is concerned? Um, well, just a lot of research. Um, and a lot of, I reached out to one guy. Um, I don't know if you've had him on, I don't know where, where I came across him. His name's Vince. I don't know what his last name is, but he has shade Haven. Have you ever had him on your show? Uh, no, I've seen the advertisements. Okay. Well, I got his number somehow. And I called and he said that he would talk to me because he, he does some rotational grazing and he was kind of talking to us, whoever was on the interview. He was talking to him about it. And so I was like, I'll just call him and ask him, you know, and I'm, I'm not really, I'm an introvert. So that's kind of tough for me, but I was like, I want to know. So I got any, so he said, I'm traveling tomorrow and I'm in like three hours. So I'll call you. And I said, okay. And so he was driving his truck somewhere and, uh, so he called and uh, I just, I just picked his brain for probably close to an hour and pretty at the, toward the end of the conversation, he said, you know what to do. Now you just need to get out there and go do it. He said that everything that you've asked me, you already had an idea on. 
And so that kind of got me like, okay, I'm responsible for this now because <laughs> I know it. So, you know, it's almost like environmentally and uh, what's best for the cattle, what's best for the family, what's best for the land. If I didn't do it at that point, you know, it's kind of like I wouldn't be doing a service, you know. You mentioned that your father-in-law has seen the improvement in the ground. Can you talk a little bit about that? Even uh, you're pretty early on in this process and you're already seeing some improvements. Yeah, we kind of have a unique situation. This area has a lot of limestone. And with that, we have uh, quarries, rock quarries. All of this land that I lease, nearly nearly every acre, has been quarried at some time or another or is in the process of being quarried now. So what happens is they take, they scrape all the topsoil off, they get down to the rock, and they pull that rock out. Well, some of those places maybe 20 feet lower after they finish. They come back and they put a little bit of the reject on, which is mostly a gray clay that's not, you know, it's not sellable. Then they spread topsoil on that, which will be anywhere from two foot thick if it's close to the pile to half inch thick if it's far from the pile. And that's what we're left with. And, you know, that soil's pretty much dead. And so learning about bale grazing and uh, rolling out hay and putting some seed underneath that as I roll it out and you know, making those cattle stay in that area and get that manure and that urine going and having all those hay bales for them to stomp half of it in the ground. You know, now we don't look at it like, oh, we're wasting hay. We look at it like we're going to build that soil back up. And I think eventually we'll have some good working soil. We've got a long ways to go, but that's what's shown up already is that the areas that we've started on early in the fall already look better than they ever have since they've been quarried, you know, for rock. That's cool. You're talking about, uh, your, your soil types. Could you talk a little bit about your resource base, about rainfall and some of those things? Um, we're probably, um, that, and that really impressed me about Gabe too. That, you know, I think Gabe says they're what, 13, 15 inches, something mm -hmm. like that. Our, I think our official number, something like 27 this year, it was more like 33 mm -hmm. inches. So, yeah, we get plenty of rain to, you know, if I can make those drops stay on my land, uh, we should be great, you know. So, so that's, uh, that was encouraging to me as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's maybe part of the reason Wally Olson said that Northwest Oklahoma's, or I guess he's in Northwest Kansas, isn't he? Is one of the easiest places in the world to raise a cow. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. yeah, no, that's cool. Uh, the, the, I want to just touch one more time on the planning side of this deal and the changes that you guys made to allow yourself to have stockpiled forage. Was it just shrinking down the, the paddock that you gave them access to, uh, in the spring so that you could come back in the fall and hit it again or, or not staying as long? What did that look like? Well, you know, that was a little bit surprising too. Um, so I started out in the spring once grass really got going. So that was my first, uh, first, uh, you know, rotating of the cattle. And so laid out my fences all in the, in my paddocks all in the winter when I had time to mess with it. And then as soon as the grass got, uh, a few leaves where I wouldn't be taking too much off, I started grazing that. So we've transitioned from hay, which was the year before 
you know, or last year transition from hay over to spring grazing. And so I went over that once. And so I start them through the, the paddock rotation process. And I get to looking in the first paddock has really come back on really well. I think, I think by, by taking half and leaving half, it really, you know, left me enough solar collector out there with that leaf to really make that plant jump. And so come back and graze it again. I did it twice and I'm like, okay, I think I better quit now. Yeah. That's because I wasn't sure. And so like some of those areas, uh, late May, early June, that's the last time they got grazed until after frost, which is typically about Halloween. So, but by having all the paddocks set up in advance, I still had the cattle going on. And so probably the biggest error, uh, biggest problem that I've had this year and my biggest mistake was not going fast enough through those paddocks when the grass was really growing uh, heavy in the spring. And so that's really going to pick up this year hmm. because I thought, yeah, I really didn't want to be spending that much time moving cattle every day. But I think the benefits of it, and once you kind of get a system down of pulling those ring top posts up and setting them down, and I use a Polaris to drag my reel, you know, and unspool, uh, shoot. 30 minutes and you're done in a pasture. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. That was one of my favorite things that Derek Schwanebeck's presentation that I got to watch. He, he, he just, every once in a while in his photo presentation, he throws in a picture of some posts and some, and a reel of wire. He says more hay and equipment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So how has that, that transition worked out for you as far as the, the time invested? Do you, do you look at it as, I am investing this time because it's what's good for my soil. How do you look at that and what is it? Yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, my wife and I tried to sit down. I wrote a business plan years ago when I first started in the cattle business. 2003 was when I started back in. I, I would, had been around cattle all my life, but buying my own and starting back was 03. And we, we wrote a business plan. And that, that's kind of a soul-searching deal to really, to really do it right. And it took me a while, but I've re, I've I've referenced that, I don't know how many times, and it's kind of made me think, okay, this is why I started doing this. And so I may have picked this up somewhere along the way. I'm sure I didn't come up with it on my own, but the thing that I want to do is healthy land, profitable business, and happy family. And if those things can, can be uh, magnified by the style of uh, management that I'm doing, then I think that that's well worthwhile. Now, I will say, you know, taking a vacation takes a lot of planning. Uh, and, and that's been the hardest thing for me. It's like right now, I have to think six months down the road. Where are those cattle going to be in six months? When I want to work calves, are they going to be close to a pen? Okay, I got to get them started rotating so that they'll come to that pen, you know. So I'm not driving them or whatever, you know, for two miles away. And where, what are they going to be eating? Do I need to be planting that or is it going to be growing on its own? And so, you know, that's, I spend a lot of time in thought, <laughs> but I think it'll get easier. But yeah, I would say it's definitely paid off. I mean, to see the condition on the cattle and to know that I didn't roll out all the hay this year mm. is, that, that's awesome. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess what you're talking about is the difference between working in the business and working on the business. Have you right. come across right. that idea? Yeah. And that you're spending a lot more time now working on the business and thinking about where those cattle need to be in six months than you are rolling out hay every day and, and working in the business in that regard. Sure. 
Sure. And it's a, that's a transition for me for sure. Because, you know, hard work is the eyes just kind of raised. Like if you're not a hard worker, you know, you're a lazy bum. That's the only two. <laughs> There's no in between. <laughs> Brett, it's super encouraging to me. And I in no way take credit for anything that you've accomplished. It's all been you. Like, like you said, the guy from Shade Haven said, you know what to do. And you had the plan and you had the ideas and uh, you just executed it. And it sounds like it's going really well. And I would love to continue to document the process and, and kind of come back in in a few months and see how things are going and, and other things that you're thinking about changing in the future. But yeah, really cool. Thank you for reaching out. Oh, sure. And I, you know, I appreciate you, the, the, the people you've had on, uh, have been not only informative and, you know, help my education along, but, uh, encouraging, you know, you had one guy on, I don't remember who it was, but he was talking about fence line weaning. And I had looked at that and looked at that. And I thought, I don't have any fences heavy enough to wean my kids across from their mamas. And he said, Oh, I'm weaning on a single wire, hot wire. And I thought, you are full of it, <laughs> you know? And so I tried it. I, and I, I did cheat. I put two hot wires, had one cow jump and get in there with them. And I thought, huh, I'll just leave her, you know? And she kind of settled those calves down. And I think Wally Olson or somebody talked about that, you know, they put an old cow in there. They were talking about dry cow. This guy happened to be one of their mamas, but I left her in there anyway. Didn't lose any calves. Uh, I mean, didn't no calves got out. Man, they never missed a beat. They, that was the net best set of wean calves that I have done. Zero sickness. They just kept eating. I, I had them all in the same paddock, let their mamas out, just like I move them every day, except I just, every time I get to come up, I just shoot them back. Mamas come on out because they're used to walking right past me. And uh, Kev stayed in. That one cow jumped back in the next day. And, and she jumped in because I was feeding those calves. I thought, I, I've got to feed those calves. They'll need to eat something. She hears me rattling a bucket out there and she's like, I'm bringing, <laughs> you know how that goes. But anyway, I just left her in there and man, they did phenomenally well. And I wouldn't have done that if someone wouldn't have said, you can wean across a single hot wire and it's really good for your calves. You know, that works. Yeah. Well, for, you know, somebody who's been around cow cows their whole life to make that kind of a transition is, is really cool. It's a testament to your open-mindedness and uh, that's really that's really cool. And I'm, I'm excited for you. And I, I can't wait to continue to hear about how things are going. Sure. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks for your time today, Brett. All right. Thanks, Clay. Well, what an opportunity there. Uh, really interesting and amazing. Brett just ripping that Band-Aid right off uh, today. The show notes page is workingcows.net slash 79. If you want to check out any of the things we talked about today, check out workingcows.net slash 79. Coming up next week on the show, we have another sheep episode. We're going to talk about the history of sheep production in the Western United States and kind of the different breeds of sheep and where they came from and how they got here and some of the different things that that industry struggled with and and how it's come to uh, the point that it is today. Um, And just one real quick note on that regard. If there's somebody out there who's a regular listener of the Working Cows podcast and is also uh, using sheep in their operation as an integral part of their operation. Let me just tell you this. There's a market for a sheep po- podcast. There is an untapped market for a sheep podcast 
podcast and you should be the one to start it. And if you ever need help getting a podcast started, not just about sheep, about anything. I've had people reach out to me about starting podcasts on forestry and finance and all the others, a bunch of other things. And and I'm happy to help anybody with whatever uh, little nuggets I can share from what I've learned uh, over the years. But there is a huge untapped market for a sheep podcast. So somebody needs to start a sheep podcast. Somebody needs to make that happen. And uh, you, like I talked about with Cody Creelman on his podcast, when he had me on to discuss free market capitalism, uh, it, it can be called the Working Sheep Podcast for all I care. Go ahead and use that branding. As long as the sheep are working for you, you're not working for them. Somebody needs to start a sheep podcast. Say that five times fast. Anyways, next week on the show, Dave Olula back with a history of sheep in the Western United States. And uh, we look forward to that. So we'll see you next week with another episode of the Working Cows podcast. We invite you to visit workingcows.net to subscribe to the show via iTunes or Stitcher. You'll also find detailed show notes pages, resources from our guests, and the industry leaders who have influenced them. For more ideas on putting your cows to work for you in a more profitable way, tune in next week.